Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and right now, I'm recording this during a pandemic. It's a crisis, and in times of crisis, governments act. But what gives them the authority to act, and what are they allowed to do? I'm joined by Rory Fowler, a PhD candidate in the Queen's Law Graduate Studies Program. He's an administrative law expert with a military background and knows a lot about emergency powers. We're going to talk about the breakdown of powers and what governments can and can't do in times of trouble. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. We are going to start by taking a trip back in time, I guess, to 1918. I'm actually going to take you back earlier than 1918. Okay. I'm going to take you back to 1914 because people start thinking about the War Measures Act. And the War Measures Act was enacted on the 22nd of August, 1914, for obvious reasons, right? Guns of August, World War I commences in essentially August of 1914, and the government enacts the War Measures Act because of the Great War, because it was a war unlike any other war that Canada or any other nation had fought, or at least that was the perspective. So they enact the War Measures Act, okay? And the anticipated use of the War Measures Act was for war, riot, or insurrection, and it was in response to a war that had global consequences. Because even in 1914, the government saw that this was going to be a war that was different than other wars. Then, after the war, in fact, the what is called the Spanish flu, and I'm not going to call it the Spanish flu because lately there has been a certain notable individual who has chosen to refer to the current pandemic in what could be constituted as racist terms. I'm going to refer to it as the influenza pandemic of 1918. Right. And right there, there's a bit of misinformation because it wasn't the influenza pandemic of 1918. It was the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920. It lasted almost three years. And there were crests uh, with respect to the pandemic, right? It didn't happen all at once. Uh, as many people have been discussing in the media recently, it came, it left, and it came back in greater force, okay? So let's look at what that pandemic did just to give us the context. Certainly, the infrastructure of several countries had been adversely affected by the war. That meant their medical infrastructures, their civil response infrastructures had been adversely affected. There were large masses of people from different countries all concentrated in Europe and certain other areas, and then they went home to their home countries taking the influenza with them, okay? So a lot of people associate the end of World War I or the Great War with assisting the spread of influenza. And, and that was actually the first big outbreak of H1N1, right? We think of the bird flu. The first H1N1 uh, pandemic was actually 1918. So you have hundreds of thousands of soldiers going back to places like Canada and the United States. One of the difficulties that we've got in looking at the historical context of the influenza pandemic of 1918 is that for a variety of reasons the statistics that were gathered are adversely affected by a the capacity to convey those statistics and to gather those statistics uh, propaganda machines for governments trying to either downplay or exaggerate the influenza epidemic and as a result uh, the numbers of people who died as a result of the influenza pandemic range from 17 million to 100 million right but the general figure that's uh, associated with it is often 50 million people. Let's put that in context. At the time, there were slightly less than 2 billion people worldwide, or at least that's what the census has told us. So 50 million deaths out of 2 billion people, that's about 2.5%. Wow. Yeah, that's significant. Yeah. Here's what we have to put into context for North America, for Canada and the United States. So Canada, according to various statistics I've looked at, Canada had approximately 50,000 deaths attributable to the influenza pandemic. The United States suffered 675,000 deaths as a result of the influenza pandemic. If we look at the populations, relevant populations in Canada and the United States at the time, so the, at the time the United States had slightly more than 100 million people, 103, 106 million people, 1918, 1920. So 675,000 deaths 
is approximately 0.6% of the overall population in the United States. Okay. Canada had a population of around or just below 8 million in that period of time. So 50,000 deaths, again, is a fatality rate less than 1%. Right. So whereas the worldwide fatality rate was 2.5%, both Canada and the United States was less than 1%. Hmm. Just to put it in context, mm-hmm. because that may be relevant to some of our discussion. The War Measures Act was already invoked in 1918 because of the Great War. Right. Right. So there was no invocation of any emergency legislation because of the epidemic or the pandemic because it had already been invoked for the purposes of the war, not for the purposes of the pandemic. And we just hadn't revoked it yet. That's right. Okay. On top of that, you've got a massive response. And Canada and the United States, one thing, and I'm not a scientist, one thing that could have contributed to the fact that Canada and the United States had a far lower fatality rate is because Canada and the United States, if anything, our infrastructure had been aided by the war because we'd cranked out in a total war con- context. We, our industry had been oriented toward the war. The industries in Canada and the United States had, to a large measure, been nationalized, if you will. The entire effort of the nation was toward war, particularly in Canada. And our infrastructure was not adversely affected by the war to the same extent that France, Germany, and European nations had been adversely affected. Right. right. You, you look at the photos of World War One, and the physical infrastructure had been adversely affected. Well, no one was blowing us up. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, no one was blowing up our country. Right. No, no, no one was yeah. blowing up Canada. That's right. Um, so that puts things in context. So you've got a pandemic, a global pandemic. Hence the term pandemic, uh, that is affecting a variety of countries for a variety of reasons. Science was not as advanced then as it is now. Social media was not as advanced, so probably less panic. Uh, but equally, there were challenges that the government faced. Okay? The government had already, for four years at that point in Canada, had already been oriented toward total effort toward a particular objective. So they were able to shift gears and deal with the, the pandemic. Um, I, I would be hesitant to suggest that that's the principal contributing factor to why the um, fatality rate in Canada and the United States was lower. But that certainly contributed to Canada's response. So you're saying that because we were coming from a place of total focus, it was easier for us to move to a place of equally total but different focus. That's one of the contributing factors, as well as the fact that our infrastructure had not been as adversely affected by the war as, for example, European nations... Right. Northern African nations, areas in the Middle East. Yeah. Plus, Canada and the United States were technologically advanced then. We're technolo- technologically advanced now compared to many other many other places. Fair enough. Um, but but that is that is significant because part of a government's response to an emergency is to place certain industries, certain factors at government control, and we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the Emergencies Act. So that's, that's a good comparator historically because it involves uh, the use of emergency legislation, if you will. The War Measures Act was already in place. And it involves a pandemic that is not all that dissimilar from what we're facing now. Right. Uh, there, there's a, I mean, we're, we're talking about a flu-like uh, uh, virus and we're talking about a pandemic. And we're talking about instead of... Uh, returning soldiers bringing it back to Canada. We're talking about returning travelers bringing it back to Canada and other reasons as well. So we've got the War Measures Act. Uh, What other legislation is there that deals with emergencies? So we no longer have the War Measures Act. Okay. So the War Measures Act was replaced, and people always think of the War Measures Act. So the, the next time the War Measures Act was used was obviously World War II. Right. And that's going to be relevant for some of our discussion down the road when we talk about the Charter, because one of the things done under the War Measures Act, for example, in World War II, was the segregation and eventually internment of, for example, Japanese Canadians, or people of Japanese race, to use the terms that they used at the time. Hmm. And that was a subject of review. And remember, there was no Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms at the time. Right. There was no even Bill of Rights, which came in in 1960, uh, but only on the federal level there was only the War Measures Act. And the War Measures Act was invoked, obviously, for World War II. Interestingly, it was not invoked for Korea. It was not invoked any other time for war. And only the third time it was invoked was the October Crisis of 1970. And arguably, that was for an insurrection as opposed to a war. So there were only three times that the War Measures Act was invoked. 
and two of those times were war. Under the War Measures Act in World War II, there were actions taken to restrict the liberty, significantly restrict the liberty, to the point of deportation of people of Japanese race, including people of Japanese race who were Canadian citizens or British citizens. And that was later the subject of a reference to the Supreme Court of Canada, which was subsequently heard by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was at the time the highest court of appeal. And the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council upheld the decisions of, or the judgments of the majority of the Supreme Court of Canada, but we'll get to that in a second. So what we've got now by way of legislation is, on the federal level, the Emergencies Act. And the Emergencies Act was introduced in 1988, and it can be uh, viewed as being the successor to the War Measures Act. People think War Measures Act, and even nowadays when people talk about the government's reaction to an emergency, someone will pipe off about the War Measures Act, and it's like there's no such thing as the War Measures Act anymore. Um, it was essentially replaced by the Emergencies Act. That's at the federal level. But we have to remember Canada is a federal constitutional state. We right. have more than one level of government. Right? We've also got a provincial level of government. And at the provincial level, we've got the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act under Ontario legislation. I'm an Ontario lawyer. I'm going to talk about Ontario legislation. And up until June of 2006, that was called the Emergency Management Act. And in June, at the end of June 2006, it was amended to be called the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. The reason I mention that is, unlike the Emergencies Act, which has not yet been invoked, the Premier of Ontario has essentially invoked the Emergency Management Civil Protection Act. And that's because we know that in addition to the legislation I've just mentioned, under the Constitution Act 1867, which used to be the British North America Act until we patriated our Constitution, under the Constitution Act 1867, there is a division of powers between the federal government and the provincial government. Section 91 of the Constitution Act 1867 deals with the federal government. Section 92 deals with the powers of the provincial government. Section 91 also indicates that any residual powers, what we call residual powers, peace, order, and good government, any residual powers that are not expressly assigned to the provincial government fall to the federal government. Right. So that means there are certain things that fall within the provincial realm and certain things that fall within the federal realm. And that's why we have an Emergencies Act at the federal level and an Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act at the provincial level. So how much of this ties into the fact that health care is generally something that's assigned to the provinces? Well, that's an important question because it's, it's not generally assigned to the provinces. Right. right. So the Constitution Act, so if we turn to the Constitution Act, subsection 92 sub 7 expressly places the control of hospitals within provincial control. Yeah. But that's not the only thing. And I know that's the first thing that comes to mind because we're talking about a medical pandemic. Yeah. But consider the following. Subsection 8 of, so these are all under Section 92, which deals with provincial powers. Subsection 8 deals with municipal institutions. Mm -hmm. Can you think of any municipal institutions that might be affected? Right. Just about all municipal institutions are currently being affected because they're having to restrict the number of people that are actually providing those municipal services as a preventative measure. Civil rights under subsection 13, under the province. The administration of justice and the courts under subsection 14. Any local matters under subsection 16. So there's a great deal that falls under municipal control. Right. In fact, our day-to-day -day lives are regulated far more by the province than they are by the federal government. So if we're comparing emergency acts, is the provincial preparedness act much more kind of relevant to us even than the federal one well it's relevant i'd suggest in a couple of ways first off uh the premier has declared an emergency so what he's essentially done is he is triggered under and if you give me a second i'll give you the specific yep uh provision sorry you came in with a game plan and now we're jumping around that's okay as as uh well two two quotes come to mind Right. Uh, one from my military background, which is no plan ever uh, ever survives contact with the enemy. Not that you're the enemy, but no, wow. no, no, no plan wow. ever survives contact with the enemy. My my more favorite quote is probably from Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Which which I'm not sure I'm thrilled about my part in these analogies, but yeah, we'll roll with that. Um, it, it's a great quote. So under under uh, Section Seven of the um, Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. Uh, essentially, the premier has invoked that legislation. Right, okay. And we have to remember that, and we'll, we'll get to this in a second, but the reason we've got emergency legislation is ultimately to grant the executive additional powers. Right. 
Okay, so Canada has three branches of government. Most people are aware of that. Most, anyone who's done civil, you know, civil studies in in high school will be aware that there's an executive, there's a legislature, uh, both at the provincial and federal level, and there's the courts. Those are the three branches of government, generally speaking. They will also be aware that in Canada, because we are a constitutional parliamentary democracy, uh, and that's both federally and, and provincially, that there's there's a bit of overlap between the executive and the legislature, right? Those who command the confidence of the legislature will form the executive. So the premier is both the head of government, technically speaking, he's the head of government provincially, and the prime minister is the head of government. He's not the head of state. The, Her Majesty the Queen is the head of state. Uh, represented at the federal level by the governor general, represented at the provincial level by the lieutenant governors. But essentially, she takes the advice of her cabinet. So essentially, you've got the premier, the prime minister, at the provincial and federal level that had both the legislature and the executive, but they have different powers. Right. And we ha also have to remember that because in a parliamentary democracy, because under the Constitution Act of 1867, Canada has a government much like the, the United Kingdom, although... Theirs until recently was was a unitary state, meaning they only had federal levels. They didn't have provincial levels. There's, yep. there's been devolution. We won't get into that. That's very complex for, the, for our discussion. But essentially, we have a, a constitution much like that of the United Kingdom in terms of the distribution of powers. So our executive is actually quite powerful. You compare that to the United States, where the executive is elected completely separate from their legislature. Mm -hmm. Their head of state is the president. Their head of government is is the, the Speaker of the House. Uh, and so the, the legislature, and particularly now where the legislature, particularly the uh, House of Representatives, is, is commanded by the Democrats, and they've got a Republican president, if you can call him a president. Uh, sorry, I got a little bit political there. <laughs> so we're, we're moving yeah, around. We're, we're bit, moving around. But so have we kind of batted the circuit on legislation? There's, there's the Federal Emergencies Act, and then there's the provincial, I don't remember the full name, but essentially a Provincial Emergencies Act. That's right. Um, is there any other sort of legislation extant that deals with these kinds of situations? Well, we have to remember those are very specific pieces of legislation that deal very specifically with emergencies, but they're not the only thing that apply to emergencies. So I've right. already mentioned other legislation that's relevant to emergencies, yep. starting with the Constitution Act. Right. So the Constitution Act 1867 divides powers. The Constitution Act 1982 provides us the charter. Both of those, as I've already mentioned, are going to be relevant during any emergency whether or not emergency legislation like the Emergencies Act is invoked. Because the charter is always going to be relevant to the exercise of power by the legislature and by the executive. And the division of powers under the Constitution Act 1867 will always be relevant. But it's really just those two pieces of legislation at the federal and provincial level that kind of grant extraordinary powers in the event of... Those are the ones that are specifically designed to grant extraordinary powers to the executive. Right supervised by the legislatures at each level for the purposes of responding to an emergency. But those aren't the only pieces of legislation relevant to an, to an emergency. Fair enough. Okay. Right? And, and one in particular that I'm going to mention, because we will talk about it down the road, is the National Defense Act. Now, I'm, I'm not mentioning that solely because I've been a soldier for 28 years and I've been a legal officer and I'm familiar with it, but because when people think of emergencies, one of the first things they think of is the Charter. One of the first things they think of is the War Measures Act, now the Emergencies Act. But they also automatically think of, well, what about the Canadian forces? Right. Right? Can you think of any times in the past, say, 20 years where the Canadian forces has deployed internal to Canada, so domestically, in response to emergencies? Other than the October crisis, which predates that, I cannot... So we know that the Emergencies Act has been around for slightly more than 30 years. You can't right. think of any other time the, the Canadian Forces has deployed in the last 20, 30 years in response to emergencies? Within Canada? Within Canada. I mean, I not specifically. I can think of sort of... You, sir, there are definitely times I can think of, like, there was flooding in Quebec. There was flooding in Quebec the forces help. I, I guess I guess I've got in my head kind of a distinction between deployment and helping out, which is probably a, a false division I can't think of them being militarily deployed in Canada. Well, and, and, and that's an interesting point, because you're drawing a distinction most Canadians, I suggest, would not. So think back to the late 1990s, in 1998, the Red River floods in Winnipeg. Right. Right? We deployed, the Canadian forces deployed two brigades, uh, and essentially two brigades worth of troops and the divisional headquarters to combat the floods, to assist in combating the floods. Right. Right. We had, in, in southern Manitoba, we had deployed 
probably in the vicinity. I can't remember the exact figure, but we had deployed in the vicinity of 4,4500 troops. Okay. At least. And that is a great thing to do when there is a um, physical thing happening that you can solve using physical means. Yep. But a virus isn't really something you can use the the military against. And that's an interesting point. We'll, we'll get to that down the road. But would you consider the Red River floods to have been an emergency? For, yeah, absolutely, yes. What about the ice storm of the late 90s? Yep, I was there. I was yeah. in Sherbrooke in uh, 98. And uh, yep, no, definitely an emergency. Right. And the Canadian forces were also deployed. In fact, more soldiers were deployed in response to the ice storm than were deployed in response to the Red River floods. Right. Right. And I was on both of those deployments. And we've also very recently in the Saguenay floods and 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 just this year deployed soldiers and and that's the term that the Canadian forces use deployed soldiers okay but we already know that the emergencies act has never been used by the federal government right. it's never been invoked so that wasn't by virtue of the emergencies act that was by virtue of a specific provision under the national defense act so uh, just to just to round that out you were saying the federal government's never evoked the emergencies act you mentioned earlier that the premier has kind of invoked no not kind of He's, he is absolutely by by declaring an emergency okay. that is necessary under section 7 of the emergency management and civil protection act so chapter and verse we can say he absolutely has invoked it at this point that's right okay so all of these other emergencies where the canadian forces come out what about oka that was one and that's distinction that's a distinct deployment from say the red river floods and uh the ice storm and the saguenay floods right right an entire brigade of the Canadian forces was deployed and the troops were deployed with weapons. And that definitely force. crosses my mental line into, yeah, that's that's a militaristic one that I hadn't thought about. Right, and that was a domestic deployment. Right. Not under the Emergencies Act. Okay. Right? So what we've got is a distinction between public service, which the Canadian forces can perform by virtue of Section 273.6 of the National Defense Act, and aid of the civil power, which is covered under sections 274 to 285 of the National Defense Act. Not to be confused. Two very distinct circumstances. Right. So under section 273.6 of the National Defense Act, the public safety minister uh, can request the Minister of National Defense to provide Canadian forces in assistance for aid of the civil power. Okay. Okay. Uh, equally, attorneys general or solicitors general of provinces can make the request through the federal government. Right. Equally, but distinctly, provinces or even the federal government can request from the Minister of National Defense that the Canadian Forces perform a public service under Section 273.6 of the National Defense Act. Public service is not aid to civil power. Aid to the civil power. Aid to the civil power is when the troops come out like OCA, when they're armed when they're assisting with, and the October crisis would be another example of aid of the civil power, but it was done under the War, War Measures Act. Canadian Forces is often called upon to provide public service. Right. Where, you know, and, and if you look at, for instance, and I'll use the, the floods in, in uh, the Red River floods in the late 90s as an example, because it was a highly successful operation. And it's because there were certain skill sets that the Canadian Forces bring to bear. I mean, People make jokes about when, when the mayor, the former mayor uh, of uh, Toronto called out the troops because of a snowstorm. Right. Right. The Canadian Forces is not there to perform public service that can be performed by municipal or provincial institutions. Yeah. Right. That's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. And it's a waste of a fairly limited resource. But there are certain skill sets that the Canadian Forces have and certain equipment that the Canadian Forces have that assist with public service. And one of the big things that the Canadian Forces brings to bear is planning. Right. We train our officers, predominantly officers, but not just officers, in planning. We do a lot of training in planning. And so during the Red River floods, one of the main purposes of deploying the 1st Canadian Division headquarters was to plan for the eventual evacuation of Winnipeg if it came to that. That's one of the main efforts that they put into it. And having seen how municipal organizations and provincial organizations do their planning, it's not a bad thing that they bring out headquarters from the Canadian Forces to assist with planning. In fact, right. a great many of my former colleagues who have also retired from the Canadian Forces, who were senior officers, have gone into emergency preparedness or other jobs because they possess those skills for planning. Okay? Equally, large number of troops who can work in a concerted manner, who can work in an organized fashion, who have access to vehicles that assist them in doing that, made the 
response of the Canadian forces to the floods a very successful operation. So that's one of the reasons why a provincial government or a municipal government through their provincial government might turn to the Canadian forces for public service. But those are examples of a response to an emergency, often a localized emergency, under legislation other than what would be characterized as emergency legislation. Okay. Okay. So we, we've talked a little bit about le- relevant legislation, and, and so there's a hierarchy of legislation. Obviously, constitutional legislation is involved. So the Constitution Acts 1867, 1982, including the Charter. Uh, the Federal and Provincial Legislation, Emergencies Act, the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act, and even federal legislation like the National Defense Act can come into play when you're dealing with an, an emergency. But then we have to ask ourselves, what constitutes an emergency? So we can look at the uh, normative definition of an emergency. So a normative definition is a serious, unexpected, and or dangerous situation requiring immediate action. Right? When we think emergency, that's generally what we're going to be thinking about. Okay, yep. But, of course, legislation will have its own definitions, will have its own provisions. So let's look, because most people think of the Emergencies Act, uh, although, as I've already said, provincial legislation is at least as important and, quite frankly, is more likely to be invoked than the federal legislation. And I would also suggest that legislation will be invoked when it needs to be invoked. Because, as we already know, the federal government and the executive branch of the federal government already has significant powers under existing legislation. They don't need to invoke uh, the Emergencies Act to do a variety of things that they've already done. For example, one of the things that they've done to relieve pressure on people is they've indicated that they will delay the deadline for submission of income tax returns, to use right. but an example. right? The, they have delayed that by essentially an additional three months. And they've done so arguably directly because of the COVID-19 crisis. Yep. They didn't need to invoke the Emergencies Act to do that. They've got the power to do that themselves. So what is the Emergencies Act for then? Like, what does it let them do that they don't already have access to? Well, there's four types of emergencies that are expressly identified under the Emergencies Act. And in, in, in a lot of ways, the Emergencies Act represents an evolution from the War Measures Act, right? The War Measures Act in 1914 was conceptualized as legislation allowing the government to deal with total war. Right. Right. A lot of people criticized Trudeau Sr. in invoking the War Measures Act in the October crisis because it wasn't really designed for that, although there's arguments that it was designed for not just war, but war, riot, and insurrection. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it was a crisis in 1970. But it was not particularly agile legislation with respect to responding to the types of emergencies that we could anticipate in a modern sense. And so the Emergencies Act represents an evolution in emergency legislation. And it identifies, it's got six sections, obviously, or six parts. Part one deals with sort of introductory clauses, including definitional clauses. But it identifies four types of emergency, and each one has its own part. So under part two, it deals with public welfare emergencies. And we'll be getting back to that because that's what we're dealing with with COVID-19, I would suggest. Yep. Part three deals with public order emergencies. Okay. One, if we're looking historically, the public order emergency could be characterized. The October crisis would have been a public order emergency if that legislation existed. OCA could have been characterized as a public order uh, emergency. Part four deals with international emergencies. Not war, because part five deals with a war emergency. Okay. Okay. So an international emergency, and arguably COVID-19 is also an international emergency. Um. Equally, you know, the global war on terrorism could have been characterized as an international emergency. But remember, the Emergencies Act was not invoked for the global war on terrorism. Yeah. Or the global war on terror. Well, none of this. None of this was invoked. This has never been invoked. Right. Okay. So right now, and I would suggest the main reason the Prime Minister has responded saying that, well, they're looking at whether or not they need to invoke the Emergencies Act is because, A, they anticipate that people are going to ask about it, and people have been asking about it. Right? The minute this happened, people start asking about, well, are you going to invoke the Emergencies Act? Hey, it's Matt. We've gotten a few questions recently about whether the Certificate in Law is offering courses this summer, given that most schools are shutting down for the spring. We are. 
The Certificate in Law remains the only online certificate of its kind offered by a law school in Canada. If you take just one course a semester online, starting this May, you'll have the Certificate in Law from Queen's University, one of the best law schools in the country, by the end of 2021. Given my conversation with Rory, I'd be remiss not to mention that you can take public and constitutional law this summer. You can apply for the program now at takelaw.ca until the end of March. So if we look at the structure of the Emergencies Act, because it's a useful point of discussion, uh, there are significant similarities between each of those four parts. So parts two, three, four, and five. They all have the same structure. They all have uh, uh, provisions dealing with interpretation, provisions dealing with the declaration, provisions dealing with the orders and regulations that may be made under that part, uh, provisions dealing with the revocation, continuation, and amendment of the declaration, the need for consultation, both provincially and with parliament or with their legislatures, and the expiration and revocation of the declaration. So they, they all mirror each other with very nuanced differences. And if we look at the legislation, so I've already mentioned that if the Emergencies Act were invoked by the federal government, by the prime minister, by the executive uh, at the federal level, it would more than likely be under part two as a public welfare emergency. I, right. I, I would be extremely surprised if they invoked it under any of the other parts. So if we look under Section 8, for example, of the Emergencies Act, Section 8 deals with the various additional powers that are granted to the executive if a declaration of a public welfare emergency is invoked. So, for example, it permits the executive to regulate or prohibit certain types of travel. Okay. It empowers the executive to essentially compel evacuation from certain areas. And remember... I've already mentioned that there is other legislation that's relevant, including the Constitution Act 1867. In a lot of these cases, there's going to be potential either conflict or overlap between the exercise of federal powers and the exercise of provincial powers. Right. Which is one of the reasons why each of those parts of the Emergency Act, each type of emergency, requires consultation between, and the way it's characterized, between the governor and council, which is the executive at the federal level, and the lieutenant governor and council, which is the executive at the provincial level. Okay. What it's really saying is the federal executive, if it's going to do certain things under the Emergencies Act that are going to overlap or impinge upon the exercise of the authority by provincial legislation or provincial executive, they need to consult with them. And frankly, they're doing that now and anyway. They're, they're going to overlap, right? Like what Absolutely. you're describing doesn't sound like there's any chance it wouldn't overlap. Absolutely. And th this is common. In, in constitutional law. There's always going to be overlap. Right. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to remember that at the end of the day, the residual power, particularly peace, order, and good government, falls to the federal legislation. Mm. At the end of the day, the protection of the health of the state of Canada falls to the federal government. But the Emergencies Act, which we have to remember, any legislation passed by the federal government has to be consistent with both the Constitution Act 1867 and the Constitution Act 1982. Broadly speaking, what most people are going to focus on in terms of the Constitution Act 1867 has to be consistent with the division of powers. Right. In other words, the federal legislature, parliament, can only enact legislation within its scope of authority, pardon me, scope of authority under the Constitution Act 1867. Additionally, any legislation it passes has to be consistent with the charter under the Constitution Act 1982. Right. So we look at Section 8 of the Emergencies Act and we see that the federal government or the federal executive upon invocation of an emergency, uh, can regulate or prohibit travel. It can compel evacuation. It can regulate the distribution of goods, which is vital in a pandemic. It can make emergency payments. It's not always bad. So the invocation of emergency legislation is not always about doing things that inhibit people's liberty, inhibit people's freedom, that can be viewed as being um, an infringement of our rights. They, it also empowers the executive to make emergency payments. What's a, what's a payment? So it, 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 it's very broad legislation. But, for example, if they're going to regulate the distribution of goods, it also empowers them to ensure that there's proper compensation for anyone adversely affected by the compulsory distribution of goods. Okay. It can make emergency payments to organizations, to people, to provincial governments, to assist with the response to the pandemic. Right. Right. It gives them emergency powers to create shelter. 
Now, a lot of these things can already be done by the executive, right? Both at the federal level and the provincial level. They can create shelters. They can make payments anyway. But in addition to the existing powers that are granted to the federal executive, what the Emergencies Act also does under Section 8 is it uses punishment to enforce compliance. Oh. Right? So, for example, right now, the federal government has said we're going to limit we're going to limit cross-border travel. They don't need the Emergencies Act to do that because they also have the Canadian Border Services to do that. But if Section 8 uh, is applied, if the Emergencies Act is invoked at the federal level, all of these powers and all of these prohibitions that can be placed by the government under Section 8, because we're dealing with a public welfare emergency or potential public welfare emergency, what it also does is it allows them to use coercive powers, right? Uh, punishment either by prosecution for a summary offense or prosecution by indictment for contravention of those. So right now a lot of the uh, restrictions that are being put in place are either permissive or are recommendations. Right. Right. So the Emergencies Act is a hammer okay. at the end of the day. But it's a hammer that also has certain aspects of benevolence. But it is not necessarily legislation that must be invoked for the governments to do their job. And that's why I'd suggest that it's, that's why within this context, the provincial government has seemingly invoked the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act because a lot of what is, is being done right now is, are measures that fall within the provincial scope of authority. For the federal government to get involved, they're going to be focused on the welfare of the nation as a whole. And in fact, it would be problematic for the federal government to focus on individual provinces. That's why there are provincial executives. That's why there are provincial legislatures. So what the federal government must look at is, what do we need to do to protect the life of the nation as a whole? What do we need to do to support the provincial governments in providing their services? Right? Because if we look at health care, we have to remember that health care by virtue of the Constitution Act 1867, right, subsection 92 sub 7 places the control um, or the management of hospitals and medical administration in the province's hands. Right. Right? But there is federal legislation that deals with health care, Canada Health Act. That's about money. Yeah. Canada Health Act is all about the money. Does anything in the Federal Emergencies Act allow them to claw some powers back from the provinces? No. Okay. Because it's ordinary legislation, right? Right. So the powers of the provinces are vested in the Constitution Act 1867, the Supreme Law of Canada. Right. Right. So with or without the Emergencies Act, uh, the federal government and the federal executive could never infringe on the authority of the provinces. Okay. Right. So you, hospitals... They, they couldn't pass legislation that would permit them to do that because it would be contrary with the Constitution Act 1867. So in Ontario, regardless of what the federal government does with an Emergencies Act, the administration of health care is going to remain Ontario's responsibility. That's right. As a for instance. That's right. So essentially, the, the Emergencies Act kind of gives the federal government the ability to superpower its existing powers, but it doesn't actually take anything away from the provinces except when they overlap, and even then the federal government has to consult with the provinces first. Yeah, the best way to look at emergency legislation, not just at the federal level, but federal and provincial level, is the legislation. Remember, legislation, or enactment of statutes, uh, falls to the legislatures, whether it's parliament at the federal level or provincial legislatures. Right? The sovereign entity that enacts laws in Canada is the legislative branch of government. Right. The executive is often empowered by legislation to make regulations or to regulate, but they don't. The executive, whether it's at the federal or provincial level, does not make laws. Right. right? They make subordinate laws, regulations, orders in council, but they don't make statutes. Statutes are enacted by the legislatures. So the best way to look at emergency legislation is it grants powers to the executive. It is uh, an enactment by the legislature, whether it's federal or provincial, that grants powers to the executive that the executive would not otherwise have. It's about transferring a degree of power to the executive that would normally fall to the legislature to, to exercise by enactment. And that's why it's important to remember that, and again using the Emergencies Act as an example, there are certain provisions 
um, that are vital um, within that legislation to, to remind us that at the end of the day, the ultimate sovereign power, well, the ultimate sovereign power, people would argue, is the people, but through representative democracy, the legislatures. Right. So the part six of the Emergencies Act, so we talked about part one was the introduction, parts two, three, four, and five deal with the four types of emergencies that we've discussed. Part six deals with parliamentary supervision of an emergency. And that's, that's important because under the legislation, the executive, it's not a carte blanche for the executive. At the end of the day, the executive or the governor and council um, can invoke the Emergencies Act by declaring an emergency, but at the end of the day, um, Part 6 deals with parliamentary supervision. It's worth pointing out, you've got a copy of this in your hands right now, and it's always worth mentioning that this stuff is not a mystery. Anyone can find and download and read these documents. The, the beauty of legislation, both federally and in Ontario, is it's publicly available on the internet. And God knows everyone's stuck at home on the yep. internet watching watching YouTube videos of Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, in between those of watching uh, Jimmy Fallon awkwardly deal with his children on a YouTube video, people can check out uh, provincial and federal legislation online. And it's worthwhile them checking it out. And there's a lot of uh, news releases to deal with it. As I'm fond of saying, it's surprisingly readable stuff. It's it's not impenetrable gobbledygook. It's actually pretty comprehensible if you want to just sit down and spend some time with it. And, and it's worthwhile because people will people will go to Reddit or they'll go to other areas and, and, and try and get information. It's far more valuable to go to the source. Yep. So if you want to know what the Emergencies Act says, Go to the Department of Justice Laws website, which is quite easily na- navigated on, on the internet, provided you've got an internet connection, and take a look at what the Emergencies Act says. And, and, and so you, you've now got uh, that's right. part six, I'm assuming. Well, I've, I've, I've got the entire act uh, printed off before me, but w- what I want to do is take a look at part six, which deals, it's, it's actually entitled Parliamentary Supervision. Uh, and... One of the first provisions that you find within Part 6 is Section 58, which deals with the consideration of declaration of an emergency by Parliament. And and it's worthwhile reading out certain provisions, because I'll, I'll take a look at Subsection 58, Sub 1, which says, subject to Subsection 4, a motion for confirmation of a declaration of emergency signed by a Minister of the Crown, together with an explanation of the reasons for issuing the declaration, and a report on any consultation with the Lieutenant Governors and Council of the provinces with respect to the declaration shall be laid before each House of Parliament within seven sitting days after the declaration is issued. Right? Shall. That's an obligation placed upon the executive. So we remember, under each of those parts that deal with an emergency, so part two that deals with a public welfare emergency, as I mentioned previously, there's a provision under there that deals with compulsory consultation between the federal executive represented by the governor and council, and the lieutenant governors and council. Right. And and what we're talking about, if this were invoked, if a public emergency because of COVID-19 were invoked at the federal level, that is consultation with all of the executives, all of the lieutenant governors and council of all of the provinces. And you got a week. And, and is, you got a week. what that's saying. And, and, but you've got a week after the declaration is invoked right. for, for that consultation, for that motion to be placed before the Houses of Parliament, right? We've got the Senate and the House of Commons. There's yep. two Houses of Parliament. But that doesn't mean there isn't consultation going on right now. Right. In fact, the consultation that is anticipated within the legislation is consultation in advance of the declaration. Right. right? And we can bet that for the past week or two, at the very least, there has been consultation between the federal executive and all of the provincial executives. They'd be fools not to, quite frankly, but uh, e- even without the legislation. But that's what's anticipated within the consultation. Uh, just for the sake of completeness, when we say provincial, we mean provincial and territorial. Correct? We, we do, but we have to remember that the territorial governments um, are a little bit different than the provinces. Okay. Right? They are not... They are not exercising Section 92 powers because oh. they're not provinces. Oh, I did not know right? that. So so it, it would probably be a bit of a tangent, one tangent too okay. many, right. but but the territories ultimately um, fall under federal legislation, ultimately. Huh. Yeah. Okay. I've, okay, I've learned something, I've learned many new things today. That is one thing among them. So 
subsection two of section 58 says, if a declaration of emergency is issued during a uh, prorogation of parliament, or when either house of parliament stands adjourned, parliament or that house, as the case may be, shall be summoned forthwith to sit within seven days after the declaration is issued. And the, probably one of the questions you'll ask me is, does that mean everybody? Yeah. No, okay. not necessarily. Here's what, and, and in pr- preparation of this, here's one of the things that I learned that I was not acutely aware of. To have quorum in the House, you only need 20 sitting MPs. That's not very many That's MPs. That's not many at all. But we have to remember we've got a minority government. 20? Right? 20. 20. 20. Do they have to have, like, representation from across the country in a certain way, or? Uh, that's just... that's not something I feel qualified to okay. comment on. But bang out the GTA and call it a day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. But we have to remember we're dealing with a minority government. Right. Right. And we're we're dealing with a government that's going to be sensitive to the need to consult broadly. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I would anticipate that if Parliament were convened, right, that the executive would make sure that they had representation across the country. From across the country and from across the problem, uh, well, from a, the political spectrum. From a reelectability standpoint, do you want to be the guy that's not there? I mean, or do you want to be the guy that that tries to tries to sneak it by? No, yeah, no, no. Um, because let let's face it, from a political perspective, right, the current government is being judged by yeah. the Canadian people on how they how they handle this. Yeah. Um, so Section Fifty Eight deals with the summoning of Parliament and placing the motion before Parliament. Because at the end of the day, under the Emergencies Act, Parliament, in its supervisory role, can revoke the declaration. So the declaration can be made by the executive, but Parliament does have the power to revoke it. Remembering that if we were dealing with a majority government, so think back to a majority government, saying that Parliament can supervise the executive is a bit like saying, you know, within a household, you know, when the parents are telling the kids how you know it's time for bed, that's like saying, you know, the mother supervises the father, hmm. right? If the if if you've got a an executive uh, that commands uh, the majority of the house, the majority of the house is probably going to do what the executive wants to do, right? Okay, that's not what we're dealing with right now, but we're also dealing with uh, a parliament that I suspect would and would understand the importance of dealing with an emergency, right? But certainly. The, the difference for this Prime Minister Trudeau compared to his father is he is not commanding a majority of the House uh, at a time when he's contemplating using the Emergencies Act. Right. Right? And so at the end of the day, uh, Parliament can be, or the House of Commons can be reconvened, um, but it's up to the individual party caucuses to determine whether or not they're going to be present. So... You can't have a prime minister who engineers a circumstance where uh, the majority of those MPs that are in the House are from his party because right. he doesn't control the, the caucus of, yeah. of another party. Um, so what we've got here is, and one of the things that the executive is going to consider is, if we do invoke this, first we have to consult with the provinces. We have to have a plan. And we have to have consulted with the provinces in the development of the plan. And we have to make sure that if and when we invoke the Emergencies Act, A, that we actually need to, because thus far they've been able to react without having to invoke the Emergencies Act. And if we deem that it is necessary, we have to do so in a fashion that allows Parliament, allows us to comply with the obligations under the Emergencies Act to have Parliament authorize the continued emergency. Right. Now, another thing to bear in mind is under the Emergencies Act, there's a sunset clause. An emergency declaration or a declaration of an emergency only lasts for 90 days. Now, that can be renewed, and it can be renewed indefinitely. But there is a sunset clause which forces ongoing consultation, which forces ongoing supervision of parliament. And that's there for, for good reason. Yeah. Right? Because we don't elect dictators. Right. Right? Um, and so that, that gives you a general overview on how the legislation works. We're not going to go in-depth into it. There's there's actually an annotated textbook that deals with the Emergencies Act, uh, which I imagine many people in the Department of Justice now are, are looking over in, in great detail. Uh, and we, we have to remember that both at the federal and provincial level, there's large numbers of lawyers that work for the government that are going to be examining this as well to make sure that there's compliance, right? Because at the end of the day, despite some of the criticism that public commentators like myself might make about 
whether or not the rule of law is being respected, and God knows I've done that from time to time, whether or not the rule of law is being respected by the executive, there's going to be efforts made both at the federal and provincial levels to ensure that there's compliance with the rule of law. And since we're talking about the rule of law, we can go to the fifth point that I mentioned, which is the impact of the charter, which is where everybody's mind immediately goes uh, when they think of an emergency. But as I hope I've demonstrated, you need to first consider a bunch of other factors before you go straight to the charter. Right. So here's what's interesting about the charter, right? Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, was created by, again, the the, the first Prime Minister Trudeau, the same guy who invoked the War Measures Act in 1970, amid a great deal of criticism, you know, we those of us that remember it think back to, yeah, just watch me, right? Yep. This is a guy who was bold in his action. This was a guy. He was he was the father of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as the patriation of the Constitution. In the same breath, he was the guy that invoked the War Measures Act during something other than war, uh, amid much controversy and criticism. We have to remember that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms does not include. A, an express provision dealing with derogation from the rights during an emergency. And I mention that because one of the inspirational pieces of legislation on the global stage uh, upon which the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was based was the European Convention on Human Rights, right, which is now 70 years old. And the European Convention on Human Rights was generally a brainchild of British jurists, uh, although there were others involved as well. But after World War II, there was, there was a view that you know maybe we should have something that will govern human rights in, in Europe since there were some human rights violations during World War II. Um, and certainly the European Convention on Human Rights, not solely the European Convention on Human Rights, was an inspirational piece of legislation for the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But there, it does have some sort of an emergency escape hatch. Not some sort of an emergency. It's okay. got an express provision that really? deals with emergencies. Yeah. Article 15 of the European Convention on Human Rights Uh, is entitled Derogation in Time of Emergency. In time of war or other public emergency threatening the life of the nation, any high contracting party, and a high contracting party, for those that are unaware, means a country, a sovereign state. So Canada is a high contracting party, not a high contracting party of of this legislation, but, for example, the United Kingdom is a high contracting party for the European Convention on Human Rights. So, in time of war or other public emergency threatening the life of the nation, any high contracting party may take measures derogating from its obligations under this convention to the extent strictly required by the exigencies of the situation, provided that such measures are not inconsistent with its other obligations under international law. And it goes on. There are some exceptions, right? So there is no right of derogation from Section 2, which is the right to life. There is no right of derogation from... Sorry, not Section 2, Article 2. There is no right of uh, derogation from Article 2. There is no right of derogation uh, from Article 3. There is no right of derogation from Article 4, Paragraph 1. And there is no right of derogation from Article 7. So there's certain inviolable rights, but there's others that maybe we can get a little fuzzy on if there's an emergency. That's right. those Those are important. So Article 15 generally permits derogation of certain rights during war or other public emergency threatening the life of the nation of the high contracting party. But the key point you're making is our charter doesn't do that. That's right. But since our charter was influenced significantly by the European Convention on Human Rights, from time to time the Supreme Court, and they're selective about this, but if we look at what those non-derogable rights uh, are under Article 15 of the European Convention on Human Rights, so even though they can derogate from certain rights, they cannot derogate from Article 2, which is the right to life. There is an exception under uh, Article 15, and that's except death resulting from lawful acts of war, right? Okay. For obvious reasons, yep. because Article 15 is, in, is, is dependent upon whether there is an emergency or a war. Um, so obviously people do lose their lives in war, uh, and you know there's a whole regime that deals with when that's lawful. Um, but... Just because you're in war doesn't mean you can summarily execute people who you don't like, right? Right, yeah. Right? That, that's one of the protections. Yeah. Um, nor can you derogate from Article 3, which is the prohibition against torture. There's a non-derogation from uh, Paragraph 1 of Article 4, which is the prohibition against slavery. We have to remember that Article 4 of the European Convention on Human Rights deals with slavery and forced labor. So Article 15 says there's no derogation from Paragraph 1, which deals with slavery. 
but there can be compelled labor during times of an emergency. And Article 7, uh, which deals with a prohibition against punishment without law, right? And so if we look at the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, there is no express uh, provision um, like Article 15 under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but there is Section 1, which states that certain rights, in fact, any of the rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, is subject to limitations. So there are no absolute rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Because Section 1, which applies to all of those rights, states that limitations can be placed on those rights uh, that, are, that are reasonable within a free and democratic society, right? And again, we get back to that context, right? Because the limitation of rights in a free and democratic society will often be dependent upon the context in which those rights are being applied. As we know from Thompson newspapers from over 20 years ago, Justice Bastrash tells us that context is the indispensable handmaiden to the proper characterization of the objective of impugned legislation in determining whether or not it's justified. And that dealt with, so that, that quote from Justice Bastrash dealt with the application of Section 1 uh, in Thompson newspapers from 1998. So even though there isn't an express emergency derogation provision under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, generally speaking, you're going to turn to, to Section 1. But before you turn to Section 1, certain rights have their own internal test, right? So Section 2, which deals with freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, has its own internal test. Section 7, the right to life, liberty, security, the person not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with principles of fundamental justice. So to use that as an example, people are deprived of liberty all the time, right? They're deprived of security of the person from time to time. I served nearly 28 years in the Canadian Forces. From time to time, Her Majesty required me to deploy overseas on operations. Was my liberty infringed on the fact that Her Majesty ordered me to deploy to Afghanistan? Yeah, I didn't have the, I didn't have the choice. I was ordered to deploy. Do you think my security of the person was adversely impacted by my deployment to Afghanistan? I would say yes. But I would not suggest that my Section 7 right was infringed. And that's because I was deployed in a manner that was consistent with principles of fundamental justice, starting with the fact that I voluntarily joined the Canadian forces. Right. Knowing what I was getting into. So when you serve in Her Majesty's forces, raised for the defense of Canada, right, you are subject to unlimited liability. Or at least in the regular force, you're always subject to unlimited liability. That means I can be deployed where Her Majesty requires me to be, be deployed. I can be required to use lethal force. And I, be, I can be required to to be vulnerable to the use of lethal force against me, right? But I did so voluntarily. So there are internal tests applicable to rights under, for example, Section 2 and Section 7. The way that the Charter works is, if there is an infringement of a right, it is incumbent upon or the onus is placed upon the applicant or the right holder to show how the government, and it has to be the government, so the executive, the legislature, federal, provincial, has infringed that right, whether it's right of assembly, right of freedom of expression under Section 2, right to liberty or security of the person under Section 7. First, that right holder has to prove on a balance of probabilities that that right was infringed. Once the applicant proves that, then the onus shifts to the government to prove under Section 1 whether that infringement was consistent with principles under a free and democratic society, uh, and that's where that context is going to come in. That's what Justice Bastrash was talking about in, in Thompson newspapers, that context is going to dictate that, right? So the, the derogation or the infringement of charter rights may or may not be defended under Section 1, depending upon the context. And that Section 1 test, for those people who are not indoctrinated in the law, uh, goes back to uh, uh, an Oaks case um, and a little bit of a derogation on this topic. Um, everybody remembers case law based upon, you know, particularly when it comes to the criminal code, based upon the accused or based upon the parties. So any Canadian lawyer is aware of the Oaks test. Right. Right. If I were to ask uh, even a law student who's completed first year here at Queen's, 
you know, what is what is the test for determining whether or not an infringement of a right is consistent with a free and democratic society? They'll tell me the Yokes test. Then if I ask them, who is the lawyer? Most people won't be able to tell me that, right? So we remember the accused, we don't remember the lawyer. The lawyer was a guy by the name of Jeff Beasley. And I know that because I know Jeff Beasley. Uh, I encountered him later on in his career when he was a, a deputy crown attorney, an outstanding guy, an outstanding lawyer. Here's the interesting thing. So probably the most fundamental case and, I, and I, I mention this to show law students what their future can be like. One of the most fundamental charter cases in the history of charter, charter law, right? The Oaks Test was decided back in 1985. Started back in 1983, soon after the charter uh, had been enacted um, and introduced and entrenched in, in the Constitution Act 1982. Jeff Beasley started that case when he was an articling student. Really? Appears representing, uh, and, and before the Supreme Court of Canada, it was the Crown appealing a judgment of the Court of Appeal of Ontario. So Jeff Beasley was, I think, a second-year call, maybe, maybe approaching his second year as a lawyer, appearing before the Supreme Court of Canada, and successfully def defending uh, a principle that had been upheld by the Court of Appeal for Ontario um, that has now defined... Charter, charter interpretation for the last 35 years. Wow. Right? So you never know when you're, when, you're, when you're going to get an opportunity like that. So the Oaks test that deals with balancing uh, the, the infringement of a right has essentially three parts to it. So first, there has to be, and, and this onus is placed on the Crown, there has to be a pressing and substantial objective whether it, we're dealing with legislation that's enacted or the actions of the executive under legislation, there has to be a pressing and substantial objective identified with the infringement of the right. And that, right, that response must be proportional. In the three-part test for proportionality, there has to be a rational connection between that pressing and substantial objective and the infringement. The action taken under the legislation or by the legislation must represent minimal impairment of that right in achieving that pressing and substantial objective. And there must be proportionality, okay? And, and we get that largely from European case law. So any time in an emergency the Crown purports to infringe a right, there's going to be that question of whether that can be justified under that test. And there's, there's nuances to that test that have been refined through, through other cases, but that's what Oaks sets up for the, for the test. Right. And, and here's where context is important. So I mentioned earlier in our discussion the, um, the internment of Japanese Canadians right, during World War II, and that was done under the War Measures Act. After World War II... Uh, there was a reference made to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, which was later upheld by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, but a lot of people like to focus on the actual judgment from the Supreme Court of Canada because there were several different judgments uh, written by different judges. And it actually upheld the actions under the War Measures Act. Okay, And that's one context where during an emergency, one group of people is treated differently than another group of people. That's where that proportionality comes out. And a lot of people, when they think about emergency legislation, they think, you know, in a modern sense, how the government treats people who are suspected of terrorism. And that proportionality balancing is about balancing the good of the state, the public good, against an infringement of rights of a very select group of people. Right. And often people who are racially identifiable. Okay. That's a different context than, for example, what we're seeing largely now, which is a potential infringement of rights of everybody and weighing that on a proportionality basis for the public good. And that changes the context, I'd suggest, significantly. Because if the government comes out and says, we're going to segregate these people who look different than everybody else because we doubt their loyalty to the crown, because they have Japanese ancestry, because they have Japanese ethnicity, and we're going to set them in internment camps. That's an infringement of liberty that's markedly different than saying, right, we want 
we're going to order all Canadians to do X, Y, or Z. So suspending all travel. Suspending all travel. That's an infringement of our rights. We Absolutely. should have the right to move freely, and the government can under the Emergency Act say, yeah, we're pushing pause on that. Well, actually, we, it's not that we should have a right to move free, freely. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms actually gives us that oh, yeah. right no, no, of freedom sorry. of movement. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's important because people don't realize that. Yeah. People, when they think about the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and they think about, for example, Section 2, they think about freedom of expression, they think about freedom of assembly. Right. It also includes freedom of movement. I can move anywhere in Canada. That's my right as a Canadian citizen. That's right. my right as a person in Canada. I can move anywhere in Canada. And so if they're going to infringe that right, that is a deprivation of not only my liberty under Section 7, but also my right under Section 2. But we have to bear in mind that the context is such that they're not limiting you know, Matt's right or Rory's right or people who live in Kingston. The likelihood is that they will limit the freedom of movement of a great many people and that changes the context. It's one thing to say, well, we're not going to let, you know, people of a particular race try defending that. Where's your rational connection, right? Where's your minimal impairment? But if they say, well, if you have tested positive for COVID-19 or you demonstrate the following symptoms, we are going to prohibit you from going to a public place. Is that infringement of your liberty? Yep. Is that infringement of your Section 2 right? Yep. Is it defensible within a free and democratic society? Well, in the context, quite possibly. That's where we have the Oaks test. That's where we have the Oaks test. Okay. So we don't really need an Article 15 like under the European Convention on Human Rights. We've got a slightly different mechanism for derogation. Gotcha. Right? And it's actually a much more flexible derogation. It implies that during an emergency, there's going to be, that's going to alter the context. Right. But it also ensures that the, the Crown, whether it's federal or provincial, because there are actions that can be taken by the provincial government that w could could inhibit our, our rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which are still an infringement of, of those rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, where they have to consistently think of, well, can we defend this? You know, what is our pressing and substantial objective? That's rather obvious. You know, does this represent something that is rationally connected to that objective? Is it a minimal impairment? It doesn't have to be the least possible, but within, within a scope of the least possible uh, impairment. And finally, is it proportional? And when you're dealing with a pandemic, I would suggest meeting that obligation, meeting that test is going to be easier than when, say, you're singling out people because of a quote-unquote global war on terror. Right. Or singling out people because by virtue of their ethnicity, you doubt their loyalty to the crown. And so as a result, we may well see infringement of charter rights during the governmental response to the pandemic, whether it's the provincial, federal, or both responding to the pandemic. But just because they're presumptively infringing a right doesn't mean it's not defensible in a free and democratic society, provided they can establish that pressing and substantial objective and meet the three-part test under Oaks. Right. So that's very much a wave top discussion uh, about this issue and about an hour long or a little bit more than an hour long wave top discussion. <laughs> by, by the standard of this podcast, this has been extraordinarily comprehensive. Uh, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much, Rory. You're welcome. Thanks to Rory Fowler. You can learn more about Rory and his work at RoryFowlerLaw.com. If you'd like to know more about government, executive power, and Canadian law, sign up for the Certificate in Law course, Public and Constitutional Law, at TakeLaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, who's also a staff member here at Queen's Law. You can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening.